0: Oh, that's last week. Week. Oh, okay. Oh,
1: we're in. There, ah, yeah. it says it's going.
0: Okay. That's a- Go ahead. Hey. which also means mouth, blow, scatter, edge. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. The understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footprints according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes. For your law not obeyed.
1: Not obeyed. Okay, we're on uh, one, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14. We've got a couple things to do here first. Um, let's see, I got that. And we got a bunch of prayer requests. We got Holly attends online. She's only 17 years old. It's not a prayer request. She's just the youngest person I know of that attends faithfully online. So I wanted to say hello to Holly. Hi, Holly. Welcome to you, Holly. I didn't know that. Somebody told me that we've got a girl that attends online, 17 years old, and she's faithfully here all the time. So there you go. Um, Ray and Jess wish everybody a happy Christmas over in Papua New Guinea. The church helps support them. And uh they oh I will just leave that. Uh Lisa and all of her children are in need of prayer. Uh a couple of them need to know Jesus, etc., but uh they all have physical problems or this or that, and uh the heat in Australia is extreme right now as well, she says. Just terrible. And um <clears throat> let's see here. Tony in Israel. He's 80 this week and he had a bad fall getting off a train. They closed the door too quickly. Wow. He's okay. But he's sore and he's not really doing well over the past three days. So we want to pray for him. And uh, Sean's brother Don is having back surgery. It was today. I don't know how it went, but we want to pray for him. Dr. Lynn and the staff, if he's still in uh, surgery. And uh, also, also Sean is still having some physical problems as well. He lives down in Lehigh Acres, not far from here. And then uh, Becky has some praises. Her ribs aren't hurting anymore, so she's off some meds. But then she needs continued prayers for other physical problems. And then uh, Carrie that uh, was in the hospital, she's at uh, home. But uh, she's got all kinds of things that needs to happen to keep her at home and to keep her from uh, uh, going back into the hospital. So we want to keep her in prayer. And then Freda, we just heard from her. uh, One of the people heard from her. And uh, we want to keep Freda in prayer. She's still having... Some trials and some difficulties, and uh, so we want to make sure we pray for them. And then uh, we also uh, have an announcement: Two Corinthians study is up on iTunes and Google Play, and the app for Android is coming. So uh, just so you know about that, if you have an Android. (laughs) And then um, uh, I got two more things before we go into prayer, and then we'll uh, we'll get into the class. The first one is a poem that Caroline, who attends online from Tampa, she sent this to me earlier in the year, and I said, please remind me. Send it again before Christmas, and I'll uh, read it. She says, it's Christmas time, a time of cheer, and Santa's ho, 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 but it's not too much like Christmas some 2,000 years ago. We deck the halls and trim the trees and make our church bells ring. They trimmed the tree at Calvary with Jesus Christ, the King. We use bright lights and ornament trim and nail up Christmas wreaths. They simply used a wooden spike and nailed it through his Feet. We give our gifts in colored wrap and ribbons, velvet red. It's not at all like Jesus' gift, whose own red blood was shed. So for now and till his coming, with his promises held fast, look forward to the King of Kings, who will return at last. Mm -hmm. That's very wonderful. So I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad that we shall. We shall. And then I have one more thing that I want to announce. This is somebody that attends online from oregon Oregon, oregon. Or, uh, maybe it's not oregon it, she's on the border. it might be Utah or anyway. Um, I'm sorry, no, I don't remember exactly Pacific where but these are chocolate she sent them to me and I tried a couple and I said I'm gonna bring these to church these are really really good I'm gonna well they're all different types of chocolate mint chocolate and this and that anyway she makes them she's got a business and uh, they're they're getting started uh, it's been a little rough on them over the time but I've got uh, Uh, her website if you want to order they may get to you if you order you know in the next day or so too by Christmas if not you got New Year's you've got what Valentine's Day and holidays and birthdays and all that throughout the year and uh, so if you they are really good and she'll package them up for you and get them to you and you will not be unhappy about it her name is Joyce and she's at PPS I'm sorry PPP pppsweeps.com anyway you can email me I'll send you your information and she custom orders them she makes them fresh and they're very good and that's what we're gonna have for a treat tonight and if there's any left which seems unlikely we'll have them for Sunday too but uh, uh, my guess is that you guys will just be eating them until you can't eat them anymore but we got those prayer requests and we're gonna go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer Heavenly Father we do oh a long list and uh, it seems to just never end and so Lord uh, we pray for those Things this week and then we have a list that was started last week, which uh, you know who those people are that uh, need salvation and uh, we will get that list completed uh, as Time permits and then we'll uh, present it to you formally, Lord, but you know the people that have asked for uh, People that are lost in their lives that they uh, would ask for us to pray for and we will continue to do so faithfully on that and we will attempt to do so faithfully and uh, Lord we also Uh, certainly lift up all of these people, all of their needs and all of their trials, and we just commit them to you and put them in your capable hands, and we know that you will do right for each one of them because you are a great God and you're tenderly caring for your people. And Lord, uh, we also ask for uh, a blessing on this particular class and that you would help us to handle your word properly and that there would always be peace and contentment and harmony in this class and that uh, you would be glorified through it. And, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've got uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14. All right, I'll back it up to the top of the paragraph. Top of the paragraph. This is, now, this is our boast.
0: Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, the holiness and sincerity that are from, are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom but according to God's grace mm-hmm. for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand and I hope that okay as you have understood us in part you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus
1: okay similar different wording but similar um, we uh, can't believe we went through 13 verses in one class That that was just amazing anyway they're short they're not real long commentaries but it's a lot of verses we went through last week okay verse 114 this thought is the continuation of the previous verse we had to stop right in the middle of it because we just ran out of time but taken together they read his words uh, I'm sorry taken together they read um, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand now i trust you will understand even to the end as also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the lord jesus all right his words in part may be speaking of the corinthians knowledge concerning paul that it was limited or it could be speaking of those in corinth who agreed with paul being only a portion of them the others still not accepting his apostleship Either way, there was an understanding of him by the church in Corinth. And this understanding was that we are your boast as also as you also are ours. (laughs) Paul is indicating first and foremost that his boasting is in those whom he has raised up to be Christians who are mature in their faith. When he stands before the Lord, he would be able to boast in a life which was served for his honor and glory, knowing that that he had not frittered away his time or somehow done less than his very best to those under his care. This same sentiment is found in other epistles as well. Other epistles as well. I'll take you first to uh, 1 Thessalonians and it says there in, uh, too far Charlie, 1 Thessalonians. If you ever get confused about the uh, New Testament, at least you can't get the T's wrong because they're all together. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Timothy 2 Timothy etc. So um, anyway, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 19 and 20 say, <clears throat> excuse me, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. And then in Philippians chapter 2, he says this. do all things without complaining that you may become blameless and harmless children of god without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in this world holding fast the word of life so that i may rejoice in the day of christ that i have not run in vain or labored in vain in his words concerning himself which say that we are your boast it is certainly speaking in the same context It is a future boast when they stand before the Lord as well. As Charles Ellicott states it, I trust that you will one day recognize that you have as much reason to be as proud of me as I have to be proud of you. At that wondrous moment when believers are to stand before Christ, Paul looked forward to the Corinthians saying, we were trained by a godly and Christ-centered man named Paul. This is certainly the case because Paul finishes with the thought, in the day of christ jesus it is a future hope that paul is writing about one that each believer will face at the bema seat of jesus christ and it's something that i say it again i just said if i'm going to say it again is that every one of us has to go and stand before christ it's not like oh judgment is coming and we kind of get to sit and watch a trial we are the trial our lives are the trial our deeds are the trial how often did we read the bible did we attend church? Did we fellowship with people? Did we cut them off and act negatively towards them? Did we do this? Did we do? everything that we do? It's all going to be laid bare. All of it. He's going to look at us and uh, he's going to judge us. And you read the description. Let's go there really quickly. The description of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, and then it's repeated in two and three, where it re-describes him. But, uh, this is this is what will be like when we stand before Jesus. It says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. <clears throat> and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands." And yes, this is written to the church. This is not a Jew thing, and uh, it, it doesn't apply to the church. Jesus was speaking to the church, which means the church. There's one church, and there's one gospel between Jew and Gentile. Hyper-dispensationalists say, oh, Revelation doesn't apply to us. That's written to the Jews, and it's all Jewish symbolism. They don't know what they're talking about. That's very poor theology. We'll go on. Um, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. That indicates his piercing Eyes. they're gonna see through everything that we have done everything that we've ever thought and it's gonna burn away all of the bad okay that's the symbolism we get there his feet were like fine brass that's uh judgment brass is judgment in the Bible he stands as a judge as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the shining the sun shining in its strength. This is what we're going to face when we face the Lord. We're going to face him in judgment, the sword, the tongue like a sword. That's the word of God. It's the dividing between uh, what does it say in Hebrews, uh, spirit and sinews and soul. And I know that's misquoting that, but you understand it's going to cut us to the point where whatever is good is left and whatever is bad will be removed. We're going to face a holy God on that day. And it's the same holy God that presides over us right now. So that's something that we all need to be aware of. Life application. Will there be boasting by others of your work for the Lord? Will they say, this person led me to Christ? Will they say, this person mentored me to become strong and competent as a disciple? And likewise, will those who ministered to you be able to boast over who you became as a believer in the Lord? Or will they be embarrassed at how you wasted your few short years in Christ? You know, all we have. That's all we have is this life, and it is fleeting. You know what? I'm 50, how old am I? 55, I think. And it seems like I'm still in high school in my head. I mean, I can't believe that the time has gone by this quickly. I know it doesn't look like it, but <laughs> that's okay. You know, It just, it, it goes very quickly, and there's very little left of the time that we walk, and all of a sudden we realize we've squandered our life. If you want a good perspective of that, take the 15 minutes today after class and go read the book of Ecclesiastes, all right? That's a good place for you to maybe go and think about what you're doing with your life. Verse 15.
0: <clears throat> because I was confident of this, I planned, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit
1: twice. Okay, second benefit, this says. The confidence that Paul is referring to in his statement in verse 13, which said, I trust you will understand even to the end. In other words, Paul had said something in his previous letter to them, which had not come to pass and he wanted them to know that he was not just saying one thing and arbitrarily doing another thing <clears throat> as he will explain he had originally planned that he would leave Ephesus and travel directly to Corinth after that he would then head to Macedonia and return to Corinth from which he would sail back to Jerusalem however in 1 Corinthians 16:5 and 6 he had already changed those <clears throat> and sorry he had already yeah changed those plans to instead go through Macedonia first the second benefit that he speaks of was the original plan of having two visits the benefit in Greek is literally grace Paul wasn't just speaking about a happy occasion which would result from his visit but instead a granting of divine grace however he was precluded from this by a change in his plans He will continue to discuss this issue, giving a full explanation for why he didn't follow through with the original arrangement. He's very careful about what he's doing here because he understands that people get upset and they accuse people very quickly in this life. And so this is what he's uh, uh, trying to preclude or to smooth over. Life application. Sometimes, excuse me, sometimes we think we know the motives of why someone takes a particular action and we allow it to upset us even to the point where we feel resentment and anger. And yet there may have been a completely innocent motive for the action, or there could have been unavoidable circumstances which arose and which necessitated the change. It's always good to review the whole situation before letting our emotions take over and ruin the day, which is something that's so easy in today's world. You know, (laughs) so easy to just let the littlest thing get us off, you know, People might post something on Facebook or send an email, and you cannot get emotions through email. I don't care how hard you try. You're not going to get it. The only emotions you're going to get through email are your own emotions. And if you're in a bad mood and you read something that somebody sent innocently, you might take it badly because you're already in a bad mood. And all of a sudden, you've got a conflict because of something you did not intend, and they did not intend. It just happened. So we got to be careful not to uh, jump the gun on those type of things, but one sixteen.
0: I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea.
1: To Judea, okay. Paul's words continue from the previous verse. They convey his original intentions, though these things never actually came to pass. And, you know, that shows us the inspiration of Scripture he is writing something that is inspired. The Lord allowed it to happen in this way, but just because he said something in a previous epistle and it didn't happen does not mean that it's not inspired. The Lord changed his plans and he is fitting everything in particularly. So we can't pick apart the Bible and say, well, that you know that was a mistake. And no, God includes people's personal mistakes, which become the word of God in order to teach us something. And we wouldn't have these lessons if these intentions of Paul Did not come about. Everybody see inspiration is a very peculiar thing. Uh, Luke, what does it say Luke did? Luke went and uh, he researched things. He interviewed people. He, you know, he uh, went and checked out documents. He went to places. He went and searched out areas to see, uh, you know, this is the shape of this building or the shape of, you know, the direction of this street or whatever. Whatever he logs in there, you got to figure it was all a part of the inspiration of the gospel of Luke and the book of acts and book of acts is so meticulous in what it describes concerning the life of the apostles i mean Luke is too i'm just saying that in the book of acts you get all kinds of stuff from all over the place and at times he is saying it in the second person they went and did this they went and did this and all of a sudden we did this we got on the boat and went went to this place and he's now including himself in the narrative and you're going to see this if you read the book of acts and you pay attention You can see that divine inspiration includes even the movements of somebody as they're learning about a process of writing either a gospel or, you know, the book of Acts or even an epistle. So keep those things in mind. Don't try to find fault in the Bible. Try to think, why did God allow this so that I can see what lesson he is trying to teach me? Okay, so after his visit to Macedonia, he then intended to turn around and go once again through Corinth to have that second benefit mentioned in the previous verse. He truly desired their company and their fellowship for that second time. And finally, after this second visit was coming to a close, he said he desired to be helped by you on my way to Judea. This help meant conducting him to the ship from the city. It is similar to that which is found in 1 Corinthians 16, verse six. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. In this and many other instances, we get clues to the fact that Paul had a disability, probably, and I've talked about this a week or two ago, extremely poor eyesight, which necessitated that he be assisted in his travels. When leaving Corinth, he was hoping for an escort of any Corinthians that would like to see him off at the port. It is a touching note from his hand showing his, his sincerity in these original plans, which were later amended all right i'm listening to the book of acts right now as i'm driving around and he just got to ephesus and the people came out and they met him and he said i'm probably never going to see you again and the people, it says they mourned over that especially knowing or uh, hearing his words that they would never see his face again but they were there they helped him go from place to place he was never unaccompanied he was always accompanied by somebody the guy had limitations and people were there to help him along with those limitations Anyway, life application, seeing off missionaries is a good way of honoring them. By giving them a grand send-off, it is acknowledging to them that they are important people doing work, which is necessary and appreciated. Should you have missionaries visiting your area, be sure to recognize them for their noble efforts. We've got one and not here tonight. I'm a little uh, I'm gonna have to send an angry email saying why weren't you in class tonight? Anyway, somebody's visiting from overseas and uh, uh, this individual will open us one week in the next couple of weeks and uh, we'll have to start late streaming because we don't want her face out on the internet. But uh, uh, we try every year to allow her to speak to the congregation here and then we try to give her a good send off and recognize her and uh, the same thing is true with any other missionaries that come by here. We always try to give them a voice, opening the uh, the service and speaking without restraint, and uh, knowing that uh, we do care about them. So there you go, one seventeen.
0: When I plan this, did I do it lightly, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and
1: mm-hmm. no? No. No. <laughs> no, no. Before I go on with the comments on this particular verse, I will say that there are missionaries i know one i won't say any more than that don't want to you know cause trouble in churches anywhere but uh the home church of these missionaries i'm talking about home church we may not be the home church to some of the missionaries that come here in other words they have a home church and then they come here also because they've raised support here or they know that they will get to uh, speak and be seen on the internet and that will increase their possibility of getting help because missionaries need help people die people You know have lose their jobs they lose funding and they need to keep asking every time they come back Um, I have seen missionaries their home church they have been overseas for one two or even three years and their home church will give them three minutes to tell what they have done three minutes yes Uh, think of the disgrace there that a, a church would say we're your home church and they one don't completely fund that person which that's fine that's but they are they consider themselves the home church of them and they give them three minutes to sum up three years of their existence serving christ overseas that is a disgrace anyway won't say any more than that i'm not going to give any names or anything but it it is a real disgrace that they would do that if a missionary is here and they have a presentation to make they need to be allowed to do so okay 117 in a roundabout way of explaining why he chose not to come to corinth as he originally planned and as he noted in the previous verses Paul asks rhetorically, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? In other words, was he just saying, I may come or I may not? It all depends on how I feel at the time. Were his words vacillating and unsure? The Greek translated as lightly is elaphria. It is only used this one time in the New Testament, and it means levity or fickleness. It comes from another similar word, which means light, as in not heavy or burdensome. And so he is refuting the charges of those who claimed he was fickle or insincere in his dealings with them. Continuing on, he asks, Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? According to the flesh is probably referring to a person who easily makes promises and then easily reneges on those promises, showing that he lives in a carnal and self-centered manner. It could also have the second meaning of a person who is weak and unable to say what he really means out of fear of alienating others. Either way, his asking this question is intended to show that such is not the case. And finishing up this verse, he asks whether they believe that with him there should be yes, yes, and no, no. In this is a portion of the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Here's what he says in that particular section. Matthew 5, and then in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. All right. The same sentiment is cited by James in his letter in James 5, verse 12. If you want to read that. It was thus, it was by this time a commonly taught and understood precept. Paul was asking if they felt he was failing to adhere to these words of Jesus and speaking out of both sides of his mouth at once. The rhetorical nature of these questions show that none of this was the case. He will defend his actions to show that this is so. It should be understood that each phrase in this verse carries a bit of ambiguity and can be viewed from different ways. It is as if Paul is purposefully using such ambiguous wording to cover any and all possibilities concerning accusations against him. In this, the pulpit commentary says there is probably no clause in the New Testament of which the certain sense must be left so indeterminate as this. And it seems like he's doing it purposefully because the context of what he's saying is saying that you're being ambiguous. And so he leaves it ambiguous to kind of poke at him. But anyway, life application, the Bible asks us to be trustworthy, even to the simple promises that we make. When we hear, when others hear our words, they should be willing to accept them at face value. In this, if we don't follow through with them, we need to have a very, very good reason for it. We also have to be able to defend why we didn't live up to the words that we have uttered. All right, 118.
0: But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no.
1: Okay, Paul's words have been construed in various ways. The two predominant views are, one, that this is an oath. As God is faithful, so are my words to you. Or two, that God will vindicate him in his words to them. Either way, his words contain and relay the sense that what he has spoken and continues to speak to those at Corinth is in accord with the words of the Lord. His yes has meant yes, and his no has meant no. They were not fickle or faltering, but firm and fixed. This note of God's faithfulness is not unique to this letter. It is a theme which he has transmitted often. Not only does he speak of God's faithfulness to the Corinthians on several occasions, but also to those in other areas one example is to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24 it says uh, he who calls you is faithful who also will do it he also conveys this in a second letter to them as well in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 where he says but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from this evil one Paul wants those in Corinth to know that just as God is faithful the words he has spoken are faithful God is his witness to the integrity of his words life application integrity is a dying attribute of people in the world today especially in our halls of Congress maybe but when one possesses it they are remembered for it As Christians, we are called to speak openly and honestly so that others may see in us truthful disciples of the Lord. We bear his name, and therefore others will make value judgments concerning him based on how we present ourselves. And uh, before I go on, I cited both letters to the Thessalonians. And uh, if you remember, the Thessalonians were not very what, according to the book of Acts. They were not very noble. That's exactly right. It says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. So why did the Bereans not get a letter in the Bible? Because they already checked out the word of God. They understood that Paul's message was true. Okay, whereas the Thessalonians needed two letters and the second one was almost like shame on you. I've already said this to you. Don't you remember when I said these things to you? And guess what? We'll just go over here really quickly and I'll just read it very quickly now this is this is paul writing to the thessalonians two thousand years ago and he gives them the very precise timeline of what is going to happen in the future and he says um in this uh he says um now brethren concerning the coming of our lord jesus christ and of our gathering together to him we ask you to not be so soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of christ did come let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition who exalts and who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God and then he says in verse 5 do you not remember that that when I was still with you I told you these things All right, so he'd already told them this, and they didn't pay attention. They were not being Berean. One didn't check what he said, and so they just let it pass in one ear and out the other. Now he's got to write a letter. Once again, you can see that God's hand was on that, though, because we have a letter which explains these things. And 2,000 years later, people are still taking those verses that I just read you, and they're twisting them. Oh, do we have a mid-trib rapture? Do we have no rapture? Etc. He tells you the timeline right there, exactly what's going to happen. He tells you what to use in there is the basis for everything else, and he tells you when the timing of the rapture will be. And people still twist that; they still get it wrong two thousand years later because they are not willing to simply take the word of God in context and say, "I'm going to apply this to my life." They're not willing to do it, and so we have all of these different doctrines of people because they won't simply trust the word we got the same thing that you said a couple weeks ago you were talking to somebody on Facebook I believe it was and we're talking about hyper dispensationalism okay and here's here was the verse I'll read you what was said and uh, then oh it's back in 1 Corinthians okay verse 15 and it said there. Um, oh where are we 1 Corinthians 15 moreover brother and I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you which also you received and which you stand now a hyper dispensationalist will say see that's paul's gospel and so it's different than the gospel to the jews all right by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which i preached to you unless you believed in vain see that's paul's gospel and it's different than the jews and so there's two different gospels and hyper dispensationalism is true for i believe to you i delivered to you first of all that which i received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures did christ die just for the gentiles okay And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures that's the gospel was that only for the Gentiles no okay but then he goes further he says and they was seen by Cephas, meaning Peter Peter is the apostle to the to the circumcision that's right meaning Jews then by the 12 after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep okay after that he was seen by james then by all the apostles then last of all he was seen by me as one born out of due time okay so he includes them in there and he says that they're all in agreement with it and so jim said listen you're saying there's two gospels but he says we're all in accord we all have the same gospel message and he cites the scripture and the guy says oh well and then he goes off on some tangent and he says no just read the word just read the word that's all you need to do,,
0: right. or tell me that Paul is wrong,
1: yeah, tell him that Paul is wrong because that's what he said right there, okay, he was they all, and there is another set of verses that uh, goes along with that where they he includes them in the message, which one was that I think it's before in the beginning preamble to that, wasn't it? The um yes, that? okay, but anyway, no, that's one Corinthians fifteen there, but there there is another one where he says we're all in the same boat we he uses we and he had just been talking about um uh, Cephas, and yeah if you find it let me know anyway and we'll stop and read that but for right now before you do that read 119
0: <laughs> oh okay that would make sense uh yes for the son of god jesus christ who was preached among you and me by silas and timothy was not yes and no but in him it was it has always been yes. Yes. Okay.
1: While you're looking for that and while I'm getting ready to get my comments on that verse, who did he mention in that verse? He mentioned himself, he mentioned Sylvanus and Timothy. And who does Peter refer to in his epistle? Sylvanus, right? It's the same Gospel. Now you might have Silas there. Okay, That's okay. It's the same person. They will use a different name at times. And so they just being consistent in one Bible they will say that. But it's like um, Priscilla and Aquila and then they'll say Prisca as a shortened of the name. Okay, They will use a person's name and they'll shorten it at times. And so that's why you have Silas. It's the same person that Peter appeals to with the same Gospel message. So once again you have that. But we'll go on. 119. This verse shows us that Silas is the same as Silvanus mentioned elsewhere with one name or another. He is mentioned in Acts and in some of the epistles. But along with this verse, the verse which ties the two as being the same person is Acts 18 verse 5. Let me take you there really quickly. I'll just read you what it says here so you can see this is the same person. Acts 18 verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, which is what he's writing about right now in Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so you know that Silas is a shortened form of Silvanus. Okay, knowing who was with Paul at that time and then comparing it to the timing of this epistle here, it is certain that they are the same person. And so, using Silvanus and Timothy as support for his words to the Corinthians, because they were both reputable souls, Paul continues with his defense concerning his actions. He calls on an understanding of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by his audience. In this, he cannot be referring to a person who is an adopted Son of God, but rather the true and only begotten Son of God. Hence, the highlighting of of him in this way, marking him out as unique and distinct from all others. It was he who preached, who was preached among you by us. The truly begotten of the Father was the subject of their preaching. Once again, he's including Silvanus in there saying that he is preaching this and then Peter says that Silvanus is on board with him in the same gospel message. If you've got one Silvanus, which is ministering with both of these apostles, one who is the apostle to the Gentiles and one who is the apostle to the Jews, then obviously they have the same gospel message. People just cannot, I have said this many times in sermons and I've also said it many times in commentaries and there are more coming up in sermons ahead and more commentaries ahead. I say it constantly. One plus one always equals two in theology. Always. Okay. People want to take one and they want to separate it over here and then put this one over here and not add them together. When you have one Sylvanus and he is proclaiming one gospel with two different people, there is the same gospel, okay? It's all it is. It comes down to anti-Semitism. They'll dispute that, but that is what it comes down to. As this is so, their words are being tied into the truthfulness of their actions, speaking of Timothy and Silas and Paul. It would make no sense to preach the embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ, just to turn around and act in an untruthful manner. In essence... There is the proof of the unchangeableness of the doctrine from the unchangeableness of the subject of it, namely Jesus Christ. That's Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary, and it is spot on. The doctrine of those who preached was sure because of the one of whom they spoke. In him, what they communicated was not yes and no, but in him was yes. The words in him was yes are literally yes. Yes, has come to pass in him. That's the way the Greek would read. Jesus is the embodiment of truth, and he demonstrated this in his life and actions. For a few corresponding verses, which confirm this, we can go first, we'll go to John 14, 6. Okay, I'm just going to take you on a a very short trip of the accuracy of this particular sentiment. John 14, 6, which says, I know I could quote it to you off the top of my head, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, and then in John 18, we read this. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to The truth, that's right, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then in Revelation 3, verse 7, we read the following words, which say, Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts And no one opens. And then finally in Revelation 19, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. As Jesus is so represented as the truth, and as Paul proclaimed the truth of Jesus, he himself, along with the others with him, determined to always be as truthful as the one whom they proclaimed. There was no vacillating or wavering in a yes and no, but rather in him was yes. Life application, because we bear the name of Jesus, we need to ensure that our words to others reflect his character as well. He is the embodiment of truth. Let us always be truthful in the words we convey to others. Good stuff.
0: For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God.
1: Okay, a little different. They leave off Christ in the uh, Byzantine or the New King James Version. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Okay, speaking of Christ Jesus, Paul says that all the promises of God in him are yes. However, the translation here with the inserted R makes yes The predicate of the promises. That is not the intent. Rather, what Paul is saying is that Christ is the incarnate answer to the promises of God. Thus, it should be stated as a separate clause. Here's how the ERV translates it. For how many soever be the promises of God, in him is the yea. It is Christ who is the fulfillment of the promises. When we call on him, those promises which were fulfilled in him now belong to us. Going on, it says, and in him, amen. Vincent's Word Studies notes that in giving this answer in his person and life, Christ puts the emphatic confirmation upon God's promises. God made promises, and those promises are emphatically fulfilled in Jesus. As is explained by him when he spoke to Israel's leaders back in John chapter 5. Here's what he says here. It's a good set of verses. I like to use it. It's very... uh, nice to have these verses to dispel um, uh, Reformed the- theology when they say that God regenerates you in order to believe based on what John six thirty four I think it is, when is it? John 6 uh, um, uh, not 34 um, John 6 33 44 644 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him up and I will raise him up at the last day you go back to chapter 5 and explains what he's talking about there in chapter 6 but we'll go to Chapter 5 right now, we'll read John 5, 37, which says, uh, uh, and we're going to go through 39. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Here it is. You search the scriptures. It could be an imperative You search the scriptures, or it could be that he's saying, you go out and search the scriptures. Either way, he's saying, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Okay? He has been talking about the word of God. He's been talking about the scriptures that they were the stewards of, and then he says to them in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up to the last day. He's basing his words there on what he's already told them in John chapter 5. And yet they take that and they say, see, you can't come to God unless he regenerates you first, and then you believe, and you are born again, and you're born again, and then you believe, and then after that, you call on Jesus and you're saved. It's a convoluted theology, which makes no sense based on a misunderstanding of not applying the word of God in context. Anyway, so that's John 7. He's saying that he is the subject of the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of scripture. And therefore, the promises of God, which were made to the people of God, to Abraham, for example, explaining that in his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed, are realized in him. Everything about it. We've seen this how many times in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers? Thousands of times we've seen it's... Jesus. It's the subject is Jesus or something that he is doing. He's laid out the world in dispensations. And then what does Jacob do? He goes up to Paddan and he lives there. And then he goes over here and he comes down here and he stops in Bethel and you've got the seven dispensations all laid out perfectly. It's what God is doing in Christ through the redemption of mankind. You get this all the way through scripture. When you have a story about Joseph or about Judah or, you know, somebody sleeping with their daughter, it always comes back to Jesus. Always, it always comes back to Jesus. There's a reason why it's there. And it's not to say, look at how bad these people are. That's never the reason. It's always about Jesus. And maybe you get a moral lesson, you shouldn't do this thing. But if they didn't do that thing, then there wouldn't be a Jesus. And that's what God is actually trying to show us. So he's trying to tell them that. He's showing them, I am the fulfillment of scripture. Okay, Paul gives this thought concerning that in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. He says there, Romans 15, 8 and 9. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Okay? And then it's repeated again in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to see Hebrews chapter 9 in this week's sermon. Talk about everything being about Jesus, Sunday sermon, the death of the high priest. It's not a Christmassy sermon, but if you get it, and it's a complicated sermon, I'm not going to lie to you there, but if you get it, if you don't, watch it again and again until it sinks in. It took me eight intensive hours, maybe 10 intensive hours of study to get it. And once I did, I was so excited. I think I said this last week, I did something I never do. And I shared a part of it with Sergio because I don't like to give my stuff out in advance. And then, you know, I amend it or I add to it and it's not complete. And I always feel bad about that. You didn't get the whole thing and now you got to reread it again. It is marvelous. Once you get it, once it clicks, you say, I understand why we had a Christmas in the first place. This this is how important this particular passage is. Anyway, we'll go to um, Hebrews chapter 9 and there in verse 15, it says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Right there, the death of the high priest for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Wow, oh, it's just amazing. Every messianic promise is realized in him, meaning in Jesus, and in him is the amen. It means he is faithful and true. In him is the confirmation and establishment of those promises. In Revelation 3.14, he is called the amen to demonstrate this life application. As you read the Bible and consider the promises of God, realize that God himself fulfilled each of them in Christ. When we receive him, those promises now belong to us. Us, because of him. Let us ever be thankful for the wonderful, tender mercies of God who promised and fulfilled for being such as us. I mean, you think about, oh, I'm worthy of God. I would, I... (laughs) You read the Old Testament and you see how fallen we are as a species and God would do this for us. Right. They're nothing worthy in Charlie Garrett. I'll tell you that. I hope none of you feel there is either. But if you do, read your Bible again. Okay. <laughs> 121.
0: Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal. Of-
1: oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, it's a little. Go ahead and read it one more time. Verse 21.
0: Now it is God who makes both us, us and you, stand firm in Christ.
1: Okay, yeah, it's very short. Yeah, mine goes, "Who has sealed?" I'm sorry. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God. Okay, and then it just kind of ends like that one last week, but that's okay. Um, yours doesn't go on beyond that, does it? No, it, it? doesn't. Okay. I
0: have it all glued from oh, yeah. years ago. Years, I years, got, of, I got carried away
1: You, you got carried away, but that's okay. My that's It's good to get carried away with the word of God. If there's anything that we should get carried away with, it's the word of God. As long as we get carried away and as long as it's following the proper path. Um, Paul ties these words in with the amen of the previous verse. Let me read you them together. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. To the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God. Okay, in Christ is the Amen, the establishment of who we are in God, because in him is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. When we unite with him, we participate in those things, thus we are established. Expanding on that, he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ. In other words, our position is externally granted and fixed. It is not something that we have done, but something that has been done for us. The us is probably referring to Paul and those whom he was with, because he says us with you. Paul and those with him, along with the Corinthians, and any who have received Christ, because we're reading the same epistle 2,000 years later, have been established in Christ. Further. He has anointed us. The word for anointed is real. It is used only five times in the New Testament. All other four instances are referring to Jesus. Luke 4:18, acts4:27, acts 10:38 in Hebrews 1 verse 9. Jesus is the anointed, which is the meaning of Christ. In him we have received an anointing from God, okay? We're in Christ. In the Greek of this verse, there is also a change in the tense of the verbs. The word establishes is a present participle, but but anoints is an aorist. We are continually being established and upheld in Christ, but we are. At whatever moment we receive Christ anointed, everybody see that? It's important to understand these tenses, and if you read one version of the Bible, You're going to not always get the right tenses because nobody gets them all right. Sometimes they say, how am I going to fit this in with our particular translation? And some of them just blow the translation. They get the wrong tense in the English. And so you're getting a misunderstanding of what is going on in the Greek. Okay, I'm not saying you need to know Greek in order to understand this. What you need to do is attend a study, hopefully at the Superior Word, where I will give you when there is a change in the tense. I'll do that in the Hebrew in the Old Testament as well and the reason why I do that is because there are things that are in the text that if you're reading a certain version you may not get that version may get it here they may get it here and then it might miss it here and it I don't think it's intentional on these people's part sometimes it's maybe a the way the translations work I'm gonna stop here really quickly the way the translations work normally you've got Robert Young's Who is just one guy that translated it you've got john darby same thing but you get normally a translation committee and they'll get from 30 to 50 or even 80 or 100 people and they sit down they say you're going to do the book of ruth and you're going to do leviticus 1 through leviticus 10 and they're like no we don't want to do that and then if they study it they say i'm so glad we did these verses it just depends on the the person but you got all these different translation committees and that guy might not be trained well or he may have had a presupposition about some type of theology and so that's going to differ than somebody over here and so it's good to read a lot of different Bibles to get a better understanding of it and normally I would say normally most people will not intentionally manipulate Scripture and they will not intentionally botch their translation of Scripture okay The Jehovah's Witnesses have intentionally manipulated it. The New World Translation of the Bible is a terrible translation. It is highly manipulated. Uh, What they'll do is they say, we go back to the original um, Hebrew, okay? But where did the Hebrew of the New Testament come from? Because the Hebrew, the New Testament was not first in Hebrew. It was in what language? Greek. Greek. So what they do is they go to a Hebrew manuscript that was translated out of the Greek in order to get their original Hebrew, which isn't original at all. Okay, and then they will even use Hebrew manuscripts. One of them is by was translated by a Jewish guy named Hashem. He wasn't a Christian, and he translated the New Testament into Hebrew from Greek. Why would he do that? Because he's got a bias against Christians, and so he twists it. Hashem, it was a polemic against Christianity. Okay, and what do they use? They use Hashem's translation for parts of their New Testament translation, saying we went back to the originals. When they didn't, okay you got to be very careful with certain translations of the Bible and you need to be prepared to defend why that is wrong when they come knocking at your door you've got a corrupt translation your theology is bad please go away okay it, that's the best way to handle it and it does say in the book of uh, what is it Two John 3 John do not welcome them nor greet uh, or do not greet them nor welcome them into your house because if you do you share in their wicked work be very careful with the Jehovah's Witnesses and people that have message yeah I know anyway we um, uh, I'll read that again so you understand what's going on in here in the Greek of this verse there is a change in the tense of the verbs the word establishes is a present participle God is establishing us he's established it's present it's going on okay but the "anoints" is aorist that means it happened at one point in time and its effects go on after that We are continually being established, okay, and that's why it's a present participle, and upheld in Christ, but we are, at whatever moment we receive Christ, anointed. So much for losing your salvation, but we won't go any deeper on that one. Therefore, it should read anointed rather than has anointed. It may seem trivial, but Paul's words were written 2,000 years ago, and they still apply today, 2,000 years later. When a person calls on Christ, they are anointed in Christ. From that moment on, they are established and continue to be established. Now he who is continually establishing us with you in Christ and who anointed us is God. That's 2 Corinthians one twenty-one, the CGV or Charlie Garrett version, okay? <laughs> Life application. God has done everything necessary for us in Christ. He has done the work through him. He has anointed us in him and he continues to establish us in him it is by grace we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves rather it is the gift of god let us not boast but instead proclaim the greatness of god in Christ. I do not have a translation of the Bible. I hope everybody got that. That was yeah, a, joke. a joke. Okay. okay. I, I do not have my own translation. I am not a competent translator. I study one verse and I can make a translation and it's a complicated thing and I don't want to go any further than that. I'm okay. So that was a joke, but it is a proper translation. So just so you know, I wouldn't have put that in there if it wasn't. Okay. Um,
0: 122. Set his seal of ownership on us. Put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit okay
1: guarantee. a guarantee i you, see he just said that we're anointed in christ and then he says we're guaranteed in christ is god a liar let every man be uh, let god be true and every man a liar okay he has anointed us and he has guaranteed us if you can lose your salvation then the words of paul of these particular verses are no better than the words of paul in ephesians 1 13 and 14 okay absolutely crazy okay in the previous verse Paul noted that those who believe in Christ are anointed by God tied to this comes another benefit an eternal one understanding what he is speaking of here should completely put us at ease or anyone who has been confused about the doctrine of eternal salvation in other words can a person lose his salvation the answer is no God himself has anointed us and God himself has sealed us. The word for sealed is Svrachgisel. It means properly to seal, affix with a signet ring or other instrument to stamp. It signifies ownership, and the full security carried by the backing mean full authority of the owner. Sealing in the ancient world served a legal signature, which guaranteed the promise, the contents of, of what was being sealed. It is a guarantee. A change in ownership has taken place and that change from the devil to God bears his seal. God will never let the devil have control again of what he is taking control of. Ever. That will never happen. You will lose your rewards until The cows come home if you are not living for Christ, but you will not lose your salvation because that would then demean what God has done in purchasing you back in the first place, in sealing you and saying in his word, this is a guarantee. All right. As there is no higher authority in heaven or on earth, it must be an eternal salvation. God does not make mistakes. If he sealed you and then he unseals you for any reason, Even if you say, I don't want to be a part of the Christian experience anymore, it means that he made a mistake in the first sealing, and God will not make such a mistake. He can't. He is outside of time. He knows everything from the end to the beginning. He simply wouldn't have sealed you knowing that you were not to be sealed if you were sealed, and then he unseals you. It wouldn't be a mistake. It wouldn't be a change. Yeah, it would be a change in his mind, but it would also be a mistake showing that it's not the God of the Bible who's outside of time. Okay? Further. As evidence of this. Paul notes that he has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word guarantee is the Greek word. Anybody? Because I talked about it in Genesis 38. It's a special word. It's a very rare word. Aravon. It properly means a pledge, an earnest, earnest money, a large part of the payment given in advance as a security that the whole will be paid afterwards. The sealing of the spirit is a guarantee to say that a person who receives God's anointing seal and spirit could then lose it is to accuse God of reneging on a guarantee that he has made. It is an impossible situation to even consider. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he says there, hang on, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him, Jesus you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, you simply heard, you didn't have to do anything else, the gospel of your salvation, 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4, in whom you also having believed, Romans 10, 9 and 10, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here it is, who is the Aravon, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It's not your glory. It's his. If he doesn't follow through with that, he is the one that is reneging on his own glory. Okay, that will never happen. Paul notes there, using the same word, Sfragizo and Aravon, the certainty of eternal salvation. Any other verses which appear to contradict this doctrine have either been misunderstood or they have been taken out of their intended context. God is not in the business of making errors, especially with the gift of. Of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take you to a verse which is always taken out of context. It'll take me a second to find this. It's in Revelation chapter 3. And it says, um, Give me just a second. And I'm going to ask you, why is this out of context? And one or two of you are going to answer right away. You're going to get it. I know you will because you're a smart audience. Hang on a second. Um, White garments, remember this, crown. Um where is it? Uh, do, do 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 what's that it might be in Revelation two, but I think it's in Revelation three. Give me just a second, I'm gonna find it. Um churches, Diatura, Balak, okay. All right, we'll come quickly and do that. Okay, this is just gonna take a sec. I could quote it to you, but I don't want to. I want to read it exactly as he says it so that um Ah, oh, here it is. It's in two five. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. And do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Why is that not a verse that has anything to do with loss of salvation?
0: Talking to the church.
1: He's talking to a church. He's not talking to an individual. The church has the lampstand. Okay, you don't have your own lampstand. The church has the lampstand. It is not a verse that can be used for a loss of salvation. If anybody ever sends you that, just send back. That's not speaking of an individual, okay? Everything has to be taken in context. That is the context. Okay, so we'll go on. This Greek word, aravon, is translated from the Hebrew, aravon. Both words are used only three times in Scripture. In the Old Testament, they are all found, if you want a marvelous, marvelous picture of Christ and what he did, go to Genesis 38. It is a Judah sleeping with his Daughter in law Tamar, not knowing who she is, she asks for his seal, cord, and staff, and he gives it to her, promising to give her a lamb. Okay, and then he shows up and she's not there. And what's going on? What's going on? Why did that happen? It's a wonderful, marvelous picture of the work of Jesus Christ. It is fantastic. In a story which seems so peculiar yes. that it is almost Almost universally misunderstood. I'm going to stop. And I'm going to explain how universally misunderstood this is. I'm not bragging. This is just what the guy told me, okay? He's a guy that we've become very good friends over the years. He went to Genesis 38 in his reading of the Bible, and he says, I don't get this at all. I do not get this. And so what did he do? He said, I want to know what it means. And he read all these commentaries. He says, that doesn't sound right. He just went on and on. And, you know, it's just everybody said the same thing. This is teaching you a lesson on immorality. And he said, I went to YouTube and I started watching every single Genesis 38 sermon that I could find, every one of them. And he said, your face kept coming up. And he said, I am not watching that guy. Here he's got a beard and he looks like (laughs) an insane monster. True. (laughs) Anyway, and he watched every single Genesis 38 sermon, every one of them. And he says, there were none left. And he says, you know what? One more chance. He says, he watched it. The next day he emailed me and he said, I want to come down and be baptized by you. He drove all the way down from South Carolina to get baptized. I baptized him and we have been great friends since. He does a prophecy update that he sends out once a week. It's a marvelous thing. If you want it, I'll let you know and uh, I'll send you the link and he sends it out. He's in Ezekiel right now tying everything together. But he's got all of his old updates that he does are all written near about a 15 minute read on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, but it is so marvelous that when he heard that, he said, "I just can't believe it. That is astonishing." And so he came down to get baptized. Wonderful guy. Has he
0: grown
1: a beard? No, he has no beard. No, he's probably not going to happen. And yeah, anyway, in a story which seems so peculiar that it's almost universally misunderstood, the three times it is found in the New Testament are all in Paul's writings: Two Corinthians one twenty two, Two Corinthians five verse five, and Ephesians one. 14. To obtain a full understanding of the significance of that beautiful Old Testament passage found in Genesis 38, please make time to watch that Genesis 38 sermon on YouTube. You will be blessed, okay? I did not go into the depth that I go to nowadays. I did it all in one sermon. I regret that, but, you know, just I, I, you learn as you go. I started out in Genesis, and I've always said I would like to redo the first 38 Genesis sermons, especially the first 23, but up to chapter 38 in get into the word details and etc but i i just regret rushing through those but once i got the pace and i realized we can slow down and it's not going to harm anything i'm glad we did that but uh there you go with that once again the reason why it's such an unusual word is because it's a greek word that was used by the hebrews way back then and so probably what was happening is there were greek traders and they didn't have their own word to identify what this means And so they used this trading word, Aravon. It's a guarantee. It's a seal. And they used it in the Hebrew. It's very, very rare to have the same word in Hebrew and in Greek in the Bible. It's very rare. And God was using that word to tell us the story in Genesis 38 so that we would understand when Christ came and Paul wrote these words to us, these words, not mine, these words to us, salvation is eternal and it is through Jesus Christ. That's the lesson there. If you Want to know in short. Okay, life application. If you are like every other person on earth, and you are, then you will fail your Lord often after you call out to him for salvation. However, he has received you and you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, it's marvelous. Don't allow others to make you feel that you have lost your salvation. If you have any conscience of it at all, I guarantee you haven't. Okay, but. Even a person that doesn't have any conscience, 2 Peter chapter 1 takes care of that. Okay, just read from verse 5 down to 9 and you'll see that. Okay, 2 Peter 1, 9. Let me take you there really quickly, just so you know what I'm talking about. 2 Peter 1, verse 9. He says, after saying all this, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Somebody's actually forgotten that he's the same believer in Jesus Christ, and God has not. Okay, 2 Peter 1, 9. Okay, so um, don't allow others to make you feel that you've lost your salvation. You could do no more do so than God would reject his own son, Jesus. Why? Because you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, if he's going to reject you, he's going to reject what his son did for you to put you into that position. You have moved to him and you are in him. You are secure. Press on in his good graces with this surety. Pick up the pieces of your sin and rebellion, place them in the garbage can, and move on in his security. And praise him along the way for saving you and keeping you saved despite yourself. 123.
0: What are the three hardest words that a human can say? I was
1: wrong. That's right. I was wrong. That's right. Uh, please do
0: that. Okay, so. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth.
1: Oh, that's right. Ending quickly. (laughs) I was waiting for you to read more. My fault that time. After carefully building up his words thus far in chapter 1, Paul now gives the reason for having not come directly to Corinth as he first proposed. In doing so, he calls out words unique in the New Testament writings by saying, I call God as my witness against my soul. He had just a few verses earlier confirmed to those in Corinth the words of Jesus about letting your yes be yes and your no, no. And yet he now makes this added statement as a confirmation of his honesty and integrity. This then is not a contradiction of the intent of Jesus' words. Instead, it shows clearly that he believed they were, ooh, what have we got there? Looks like we got pizza for dinner. Wow. Oh, Merry Christmas. I will tell you this. See this note right here? It says, Next pizza is on David Tatro. He's done this for us before. And David, we thank you very much. We love you and we appreciate that. And he got us some Christmas pizza there. So there you go. We'll have that. We're going to finish two more verses because we'll finish the chapter and then we'll we'll be done even if we're done early. Yep. Okay. So um, where was I? Um, yes. It shows clearly he believed they were a they were a general principle. Jesus' words were a general principle for always being truthful in speech to others, but at the same time, they are not a rigid exclusion of the right to appeal to God in solemn cases and for good reasons. That's the pulpit commentary's comments on that. God has shown us through his word that we can, in fact, make such bold claims when the situation so demands it. The reason why I'm being peculiar on that is because people will say, you should never say I swear by my soul or something like that. You should never because Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. It's a general statement saying that you need to be truthful in everything you say, even to a simple yes. Okay, Paul comes out and he says, listen, I'm making a vow. How did he word it? Um, anyway, he said, um, God is my witness. yes, God is my witness. It doesn't mean that you can't take an oath. That is untrue and people will teach you that. In the Old Testament, it says, when you make your oaths, you will make them in the name of the Lord. Anything else is idolatry. That's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Be as truthful as possible. But if you must make an oath, such as going to, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 Court, thank you. And you put your hand on the Bible, which I know they don't let you do that anymore. I would demand a Bible. You know, I'm not going to make an oath unless I make it on the Bible. You want an oath from me? Okay, that's how it's going to be. Anyway, so um, in the case of Paul here, he had a very good reason for not going through Corinth and it required this oath when giving it. In his words to them, he gives the reason as to spare you. I came no more to Corinth. If he had come at the time he originally said he would come, it would not have been a visit filled with love and tenderness, but one filled with discipline and probably very hard feelings between both sides. He alluded to this way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I know you remember exactly what he said, so I don't have to read it, but I will in case somebody else hasn't heard this. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? or in love and a spirit of gentleness. Paul only had the best intent for the Corinthians and their mutual friendship in mind. It is this that he now conveys to them. Life application, we are certainly implored by the Lord to fulfill the words that we speak. But there may be times when amending our actions are actually more necessary than fulfilling the original plans that we have conveyed. If so, however, we should be careful to explain why we made the changes, including what was involved in the decision. Paul has set a good example for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last verse of the chapter and we'll be done.
0: Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you
1: stand firm. By faith you stand firm. Okay, I'm going to allude to this at the end of the sermon this coming Sunday. But just to give you a little bit of it right now if you are relying on the law of moses you have to observe the law of moses okay you're you're a supposed believer in christ and you have to observe the law of moses is that standing on faith does it have anything to do with faith it completely negates faith it completely and further it negates what christ did it just says it was useless it was pointless and you don't need to worry about jesus because you're working your way to heaven I just don't understand how people can have that attitude and display that in the presence of God and say I know Jesus says it is finished but I need to continue finishing it for him alright anyway Paul's words here are given to explain his words of the previous verse he just said to spare you I came no more to Corinth he is qualifying that statement now so that his audience knows that neither he nor any of the Apostles had dominion over their faith each person comes to Christ in the same way by grace through faith and they have the right to grow in their own way if they're on fire for the lord or if they quietly follow him in their hearts they have dominion over their own faith although believers should be encouraged to attend bible studies and worship services it is not up to someone else to dictate to them whether they actually do this is even true with paul and the apostles as he now notes instead they are fellow workers for their joy They were to encourage, build up, correct in doctrine, and so on. But they were not the Lord's over the faith of those they ministered to. And that same tradition carries on today between pastors and congregants within the church. This is explicitly noted by Peter in 1 Peter 5.3. Let me take you there just so that I know I cited it, and I don't remember the verse off the top of my head, so I want to know why I cited that 1 Peter 5.3 he says oh yeah nor is being lords over those entrusted to you but by being examples to the flock I just typed the commentary on that about four days ago all right Um, like Paul of the past pastors are to be examples to the flock not lords over them Paul understood this and he wanted those in Corinth to understand it as well he canceled his visit to Corinth His canceled visit to Corinth was to spare them from a loss of joy, not a loss of fellowship in Christ. And the reason for this is because for them, as with every true believer, it is by faith that you stand. How can someone else control the faith of another? They can't, and therefore they have no rights to exercise dominion over that same faith. This notion that we are saved by faith is stated by Paul many times. The idea that we also stand by faith is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Life application, if you are in a church where the pastor wields too much authority over your spiritual life, you should be extremely careful. This can be, and has many times, turned into a a cult with terrible consequences. Jim Jones, the Branch Davidians, the Mormons... The Jehovah's Witnesses and many other cults started with leaders that exercised dominion over their congregants many times in history it has ended badly for the lives of those people and the eternal consequences of such a relationship and what it leads to is only in one sad direction so pay attention to the people that you're following and uh, you know it's one thing if a pastor is you know I'm adamant about this word. That's fine. I mean, anybody that's vacillating in their doctrine probably doesn't have sound doctrine. And i changed my mind about that, and it's fine to change your mind as well. But it has to be because there has been real evidence that he has been wrong, and he admits it. So, but if he's just vacillating in his doctrine from one thing to another constantly, he probably was never grounded in the first place. Points of doctrine, but I'm talking about a major system of doctrine, okay? You need to be at least established in what you believe might change a point in doctrine at some point and say i was just wrong on this but be careful pay attention to what's going on around you and don't trust anybody don't trust charlie garrett okay trust the word of god yes you had something meeting
0: next
1: week? uh <laughs> yeah might as well it's a thursday and christmas mean? is uh wednesday i'll be here if not that's okay i mean you know me i'm not here to force anybody but i'll be here yeah just no I, one i'm, one I'm just saying like i just why, 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 why? i don't know because maybe maybe it's, the holidays. it's a nice holiday yeah out
0: there, no
1: I agree I totally agree I, I'm glad you said that because I meant to say that is we will be here next Thursday and because yeah, it is it's the holidays and it would be nice to have a day off but not with Bible study no, I just, oh boy. no you're no you did the right th- I'm glad you did I would have said the same thing here we go no, no 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 don't have the wife hit you okay Heavenly Father we do thank you so much For this word we thank you that you have heard the prayer requests we have submitted to you and we would pray that you would respond to them accordingly and that the people that are mentioned that they would be uh, uh, safe and secure in their health and in their uh, getting better or uh, whatever you have for them that they would at least understand that you have a purpose for what they're going through and we pray for the people that have mentioned uh, people that need salvation in their families and we would lift them up to you collectively right now and Lord, we certainly thank you for Brother Dave, who was so kind to buy us a pizza dinner, and uh, we just want to uh, ask that you return a big blessing upon him. And uh, just each person that's here, we would pray that they would understand that uh, Jesus Christ did come, and that what we're celebrating next week is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, not his birth, which happened in September, October, but we are celebrating the incarnation, which happened at this time of year, that he was conceived in the womb and. A man was formed and God came among us all at the same time. What a marvelous thing. We thank you for that wonderful, sure thing that happened and that it is the guarantee that we have eternal life when we put our faith in him. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this up. Oh, no, no. Still, let's see here. We got to go uh going to work. Yes.